0: Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chan, and with me I have
1: Kevin
2: Dong, Brendan Trotter,
0: and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team.
2: Our goal is to connect all the McMaster-affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to
0: know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Mac Emerge Podcast. We're actually recording this with one of my friends and colleagues, Dr. Christian Rose. He is a dual-boarded emergency physician and informaticist. And he's also an assistant professor at Stanford University's Department of Emergency Medicine. So Christian, will you say hi to everyone?
3: Hi, I'm Christian Rose. Nice to meet all of you guys. Thanks for having me, T-Chan. This is, this is awesome.
0: Thanks so much, Christian, for being a part of this session. Just for reference to everyone listening in the podcast, we are also recording part of this to air with the residents during one of their special segments about tech and emergency medicine. So it's one of the special boot camp kind of like sessions. And we welcome you as a kind of a guest lecturer to our residency program as well. So thank you so much for coming in.
3: Thanks. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. It's a uh, area of discussion is one that uh, I think about a lot. I'm excited to share.
0: Let's just go with the basics. What is an informaticist? Never heard that term. I've heard people who do clinical informatics. McMaster has our e-health program, but can you tell me what that is?
3: Yeah, I go by clinical informaticist, but informatician is also an acceptable phrase for what people do but informatics my friends ask all the time especially my friends in medit and my friends in research they're like oh right i need an informatician or an informaticist but wait like what do you guys do so technically our like governing body, which is now an ACGME accredited subspecialty in the U.S. in medical informatics. The American Medical Informatics Association, AMIA, says that informatics is the application of informatics and information technology to deliver healthcare services. So like hugely broad could kind of mean anything to me. It means all the different ways in which we use technologies and information systems to help deliver care and provide care for our patients or to understand disease processes. So it's pretty much everything, I guess.
0: All oh, right, right. So that's really broad. I mean, as a generalist emergency physician, I totally get it. You love generalism, but like, that sounds like everything that has to yeah. do with anything techie. So that's super interesting. So tell me more about what you kind of do then, because you could do it all, but I doubt that any one person could do it all. So what are the kinds of things, what does your life look like in the informatics side?
3: Yeah. Well, it sort of depends on where you're at, either A, in your career and B, like very specifically what your institutional needs are in your patient population. For me, say my day-to-day on the clinical informatics side is both on a research level, accessing and acquiring data that people use for research purposes, whether that's from EPIC and Clarity in these big databases and learning how to do some data science. That's like one of the fundamental day-to-days, but also clinical informatics relies on the ability to like improve care, which isn't just the research alone, but is actually the implementation. So are people trying to implement an AI model or a predictive analytics model at the point of care? That's actually much harder than one of us in the or any audience member, myself included, might've initially thought. It means that you have to not only get the data, build the model, validate the model, put the model into the EHR or build a website where someone can actually use it to provide or change care at the point of care when they're with a patient. So that means making it accessible to people, deciding whether or not you're going to do that on a digital health app or use people's phones versus the EHR. But basically on any given day, you're probably spending some time acquiring data, assessing, cleaning it, doing some data science, then also assessing the problems and whether or not you have the right data to solve that problem. And then lastly, you're usually working with some level of the quality teams or the operational teams to determine how we're going to use that information to change practice or to even maybe change the layout of the ED because we know these certain beds are getting underutilized or something like that. So you have a role between research, operations, and quality really across the board since all of those require the clinical informaticist.
0: All right. You're kind of almost like a transformation or translation guru that helps the clinicians talk to the data science slash computer people and... Back and forth, I
3: assume. Yeah. If you're at a place like Stanford, or even if you're at McMaster or anywhere like in between, it depends on what other resources you have at your institution, too. Some people spend most of their time, some of the Kaisers say, who are clinical informaticists, really implementing drug allergy alerts or making sure to avoid clinical errors, which is that translational? Not necessarily. But for me, in an institution where we have a research arm, where we have a quality arm, where we have all of these people working on very similar projects, you do get to do a bit of the bench to bed side and even work with undergraduate students or the like bio design lab where someone's trying to come up with like a new determine whether there's a product market fit for like a new drug allergy testing swab. Like, is that possible? How many allergy patients do we see here? And is this something that could be done and feasible? So if you're at a place that has both research and care being provided, you're able to do some of that translational work. But a lot of places are just a shop that's, which is awesome, just a straight clinical hospital, you know, rural places. You might be doing like initiating the telemedicine setup to make sure people can get subspecialty care. And you might be helping the providers work on their note and how their note can be like more efficient or clear for billing and other things like that. So it is very dependent on the place you're at, but the clinical informatics training, what this sort of gets at is how broad our training is. And a little bit of that is to have to know the legal side, the technical side, and also the human side of how technologies affect our practice?
0: So let's be honest, I'm still charting on paper, right? And so a big part of what we're doing now is moving on to a new platform, I think you are familiar with it, it's called Epic, a uh, little known EHR. <laughs>
3: yeah, I've, I've heard of it. I Yeah, I hear they have like a whole castle set up in uh, <laughs> in Wisconsin, you know.
0: And one of our hospitals that's affiliated with McMaster, St. Joe's, which our residents do cycle through, so they're familiar with it and they'll be probably helping all of us, world um, get get into optimizing things. But I think that, you know, for us, this is kind of new landscape, thinking about how we can take this data, look at it, use it to be able to fold things into our clinical practice, practice, optimize it. Everyone talks about like having short codes that help you hack your way through your charting faster and all those other things. And people talk about macros and all those other things. Right. And so I know that those exist. I know that I was trained a little bit when St. Joe's went live. So I have some sense of all this, but at the same time, can you walk me through, you know, as someone who hasn't had as much experience with a proper kind of like large scale EHR, what does life look like on a shift? And how do you interact with some of these technologies?
3: Teacher, and you asked the... The good questions. Uh, I wouldn't expect anything else. This is gets at like really the promise and the perils of the EHR and the digital like frontier. Just from the experience side, I always love the quote, wherever you go, there you are. The practice of emergency medicine, you know, a lot of things that we do don't require knowing anything about a patient beforehand. We do tons of empiric things and providing care for our sickest patients is often done algorithmically without any need to know why their heart stopped. It just did stop. And we're going to do some stuff and we're going to treat them the best we can without knowing anything about them. Would our care change if we were able to get information immediately of the meds that someone is on? What else was happening just beforehand? What kind of fall that they had? Of course, but realistically, a lot of the care is still a patient and a provider sharing information, learning about each other and making recommendations. So Quite honestly, on the day-to-day of what we do, the very little changes once you implement an EHR. And what it does change, and at least part of the reasoning for going to an EHR system is, hey, can we be capturing a bunch of this to do more population health research? Can we understand how care is being provided and the quality of it so we can be better? I think there's a very good case to be made for digital records for the fact that we can ultimately consistently go through and, and learn about our patients and our providers. At the same time, we know that that is caused huge note bloat. The EHR has been directly attributed to a lot of increasing burnout in the United States where they get implemented. There's some great articles in like the New York Times and in various places and research articles, of course, about the sort of unintended consequences. Again, I'll share with you guys our like ASAP talk on some of the unintended consequences of even the subspe- subspecific area of AI in healthcare. But all of these things can have pros and cons and they're really determined by what you're trying to do. So a new EHR coming into your ED or your institution can be a great opportunity to synchronize, to be able to read what's going on with a patient in the outpatient setting and to communicate with people's primary doctors. But it also might wind up leading to a little bit more of a disconnect from your patients if you don't implement it the right way. Some people chart in rooms to be efficient, but efficiency leads to or can lead to less of an emotional connection with your patients. And then feeling like they're not really, you're not thinking about them. You're just trying to check some boxes. The day-to-day of what implementing an EHR into an ED, even if you're starting with paper, is that's really understanding your providers and what they want to do and making sure that you tailor it to their needs. And a last example would be that we use digital tools and there's informatics interventions globally. I do a lot of work in Tanzania and with the World Health Organization to implement a, a decision aid app for like primary survey. But a bunch of the best interventions actually come from places that have no infrastructure because you're allowed to sort of jump all of the inertia that comes with older models like the VA in America's EHR has existed for a long, long time that inertia of having such a robust, big system that has a ton of data actually can make it a little harder to respond to what clinicians and patients want. So again, most of this is just to say that I think wherever you go, there you are. It's physicians trying to provide really good care and the EHR itself isn't going to make that better or worse a priori, but it is an opportunity to really think about what you want to get out of these systems and how it is you're going to use them to improve.
0: All right. So bottom line is that sky's the limit and the tech is real and the tech can move mountains and change systems but also drive you up the wall and so for just like voting if you're really into this stuff and you want to make a change you have to get involved right you have to be interested to roll up your sleeves maybe learn a little bit more and i know that you know when we transition to epic there'll be people who are super users they're helping build the systems and and i think that that's probably true is that citizenship when it really has that grassroots kind of involvement can really change and help improve your life. So I I do see the merit in getting involved in clinical informatics, the way that you've described it. And I think that getting grounded in being able to participate in some way is important. If someone was interested in going deeper like you have what are some pearls and pitfalls what are some good fellowships in the U.S. if people want to go and learn because we're pretty behind I mean we do have like you know master's programs and some like of that and, and I'll, I'm in the teaching faculty for the e-health master's so I know that some of these competencies and my colleagues who have gone on to do that master's have come up with similar competencies to you and they've sit on those committees and help with you know virtual care and they build our EHRs they interface with epic things like that so I know that there is local training, but if you could give advice to some of our trainees who are interested in exploring this, what would you suggest?
3: Another great question. It's a new-ish field. I feel very fortunate that I got exposed to it in college. Actually, I was doing my like senior thesis in my like sociology of science, major remote medicine, because I was interested in like space medicine. And it turns out that that's like the field of telemedicine, which is obviously now a huge deal. Tons of people know about and are interested in, you know, that's where our care is going, especially for Difficult to access places, and so I was just sort of interested in the subject area. And then I went to Columbia for medical school, and they had one of the earliest informatics departments in the country. There are some of the other major ones that people know about: Beth Israel Deaconess. There's Vanderbilt. There's Stanford, University of Texas, Oregon has a great one. Seattle, close, getting close to Canada over there, has a great program as well. But basically, there's a spectrum of levels of interest and involvement you can take too. There are now master's programs in informatics. where people learn, again, some of the core of data science. But given that it's so broad, there's also certificates. So some people go and they want to learn the specifics of how to implement a, you know, a decision support tool at the point of care. And because that's done so many times, you can really focus on that. Or you can focus on the tele telemedicine side or digital health and e-health, which is actually a subset of an, the informatics world too, of helping people, you know, quantify their care and physicians being able to access people through apps and digital health tools. Not to be too like roundabout on it, there's many different places you can go to the American Medical Informatics Association, AMIA website is great because they've compiled a bunch of the lists of fellowships, master's programs, how long they've existed, contact points, and sort of what their area of interest is. The next thing I would say to that is really thinking holistically about what part of this field you like, given that it's so broad. I have friends that just like love wearables and they want to know everything that there is to know about how an Apple watch is going to be able to affect your care. That's not necessarily the same as, you know, being a clinical informatician at your hospital and determining how you're going to like make use of that data at the point of care or whether it will sync with fire app onto Epic or something like that. For me, I wound up thinking more of the policy side and how we use these technologies to provide care. So thinking a little bit about that will also help you find which subset the areas you want to get into. There's a whole field now growing too, of health, services informatics, since we have open data sets, COVID tracking, that is quite different than telemedicine. You know, that is a completely different area where people are trying to understand cost effectiveness of modeling for populations and city planning. The long and short of this is that there's a huge spectrum and deciding which part you like to be involved in is the first place. If you really like the tech, you really like a certain project, learn as much as you can about that area and deep dive onto it. If you want to be more and more broad, you can keep expanding out. And ultimately, I might wind up with something like an informatics fellowship that I did, which I'm happy to explain a little bit more about what that looks like too.
0: Yeah, why don't you give us a rundown of that?
3: Yeah, I'm sure everyone here thinking about their training and whether or not they need more training on top of their training that they've been doing since they were you know, in elementary school. The question comes up like, Do I need to learn more? Do I need to do a fellowship? Do I need to do a master's degree in order to do what I want to do? I had a great mentor who was also an informatician, Herb Chase at Columbia, who, you know, was always like, delay it until you absolutely need the skill to do what you want to do. For me, the informatics fellowship offered the sort of bucketed areas of learning a bit about the data science and what is required, learning about infrastructure and how hospitals and healthcare systems currently organize their information. So, some of that is learning about in Epic, say, which you guys will be going over to. Where is data stored? How is it acquired? Who has access? How is their entire model in EHR built? So that when I say I want to do a research project, you know, I want to find out how good residents are at ordering the right antibiotic. You know, you know which part of the orders to go to and you know how to look at prescriptions. But you might also find that there's ways in which the note can be scoured for why they chose not to use Bactrim because the person has a self-allergy. Or the clinical reasoning and knowing where that information is stored and whether it's stored in the first place is important to actually getting to greater knowledge. The next part is then like the legal aspects. Part of Informatics Fellowship is learning about in the US the laws that sort of made it required for people to and hospitals to start switching to digital health or. EHR's electronic health records in the first place. The High Tech Act is a big part of that and understanding the ins and outs of what's required for meaningful use of electronic health records and understanding the groundwork of why that's important for care and and how to advocate for improved patient care in the learning healthcare system, which is where a lot of policy comes from. So if you're interested in policy, there's that element that actually I would say a quarter of what we do in the informatics fellowship is learning about where and why we're doing the things we're doing doing. A lot of that comes from like the top down. So you have to be involved with your chief medical officers and people at the hospital level. And then the last one is like change management and understanding, Hey, just because I have a tool and I think it's really cool. And I think this is the best thing, you know, since sliced bread for how we're going to like understand and summarize patients. Ultimately, a lot of informatics interventions are reliant on change management. And so we spend about a quarter of our time learning how to go ask the right questions in the first place. Informaticians are efficient people like emergency physicians. And we don't do stuff just because it's the cool next thing to do. We instead want to define a really clear clinical problem. So informatics fellowship also generally involves learning how to like, have a seat at the table, ask the questions, Do the five whys of a lean, you know, like a cycle of why is this a problem? Who is it a problem for? And how do we know that before even taking the next step to developing? Because development costs are very expensive. Informatics fellowship is two years in the United States. It is now ACGME approved and has a medical subspecialty approved by the pathology and preventative medicine boards. And so it's becoming more and more structured with each year since I think 2013, when it was first made a subspecialty. And continues to sort of subdivide out too into those different verticals that someone could wind up in for like, if they will really want to just do the digital health side. So it's a little bit of the Wild West, but the fellowship is really great for the opportunity to have this holistic sense of where is it coming from? Where is it going? And how do we help people and our providers provide the best care without just giving them another thing? that they have to address and more work.
0: Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I mean, I think the only thing to consider would be to ask someone who's done like the Canada, US J1 visa trek in order to do mm. a fellowship if you're super interested. One of our recent alumni, Blair Begum, is down at Stanford right now actually doing his ICU fellowship. So we can probably get you in touch with someone if you're interested in that. But you know, for those of us who are staff physicians that have been out in the world a little bit, maybe it's just going to do some certificate training. Maybe it's going to actually do that slow grind at the part-time master's to to just get your confidence up that this is an area that you're interested in. It sounds like the informatics side is maybe a little bit more, possibly nine to five. So if you're thinking about transitioning out of you know the rigors of all night shifts or something like that for emergency medicine, and maybe looking for you know C-suite opportunities, the master's might be the way to go for the credentialing as well. I think there's a lot of different ways to get involved in this, so definitely I do encourage people to take a look at it. Increasingly, there are good online kind of programs, especially in this post-COVID world people are hitting the books digitally all over the place and I think the sky's the limit if you want to get into this space and I think it's we're just at the beginning of it I think Christian your place of work is probably almost two decades more advanced than us in so many ways because you're right in Silicon Valley you write, right you know like in the zone of a lot of high-tech kind of like influence and, and I think that you're kind of living our future in many ways so maybe we'll st- stay in touch and bring you back to talk another time when we're a little bit more in the thick of it
3: of course it would be my pleasure yeah I think everyone on the informatics side I would say is that like it brings given that it's where we're going and when you can actually help people do the thing they want to do. The other informatics people around me I've seen get a ton of positive feedback because they ultimately are much like we like to do in the emergency department, helping people solve problems that they have within a like very robust, huge system. And you can either make a perfectly efficient machine from the built from the ground up, or much like we know for healthcare systems and organizations anyway, it, it winds up being much more of a patchwork. And so if you like being that person that is helping people figure out how to navigate this and solving lots of different problems, you do get a lot of like fun. You're not just like alone in a room plugging away numbers. It tends to be a nicely like applicable thing that has end solutions that exist and then become part of deployed into the rest of the like ecosystem. So it's fun to get to see your work out there and helping someone.
0: Yeah. And I think that's really inspirational in so many ways. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. And if the residents want to get in touch with you, they can just touch base with me and I'll put you in touch.
3: Yeah, you will have my email and everything over there. I'm happy to talk to anyone. I think it's changing a lot so we're reliant on all the younger trainees to keep getting involved and paving the way forward.
0: Yeah, for sure. And can people follow you on Twitter? I think they can, right? Of so want to help people your Twitter.
3: Yeah, my Twitter is at uh, @rose like the flower, but then it's FLWR. The emergency physicians who take base calls No, that's everyone asks for your last name and all my friends make fun of me for uh, having to say rose like the flower about 40 times a day.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much for your time and uh, right. nice talking Thanks to you. Thanks for
3: having mm-hmm. me. Looking forward to talking to you guys.
0: Welcome to Residence Corner, where you will learn about some of the awesome work that our McMaster Emerge residents have been
3: up to.
2: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Mac Emerge podcast. As always, I'm Ben, one of the PGY2 residents in the Mac Emerge program. This month, and actually next month as well, I'll be speaking with Dr. Maggie Vincent, who is one of my co-residents in our FR program here at MAC. The reason we're breaking this up into two sections is because I had a wonderful chat with Maggie, and there was so much knowledge that it felt like it would be a disservice to all of you listening if I try to edit this down into a single residence corner. So please enjoy part one of my conversation with Maggie on wellness. I am very lucky and very fortunate to be interviewing one of my co-residents, Dr. Maggie Vincent today. Maggie is a wonderful doctor, a wonderful human being, and is a very well person. In fact, she is not only our wellness rep, For our McMaster Emerge program, she also won an award for wellness from the Postgraduate Medical Education Group here at Mac last year. So we're talking to a person who has award-winning wellness, and I'm going to be picking Maggie's brain about a couple strategies she has and what wellness means to her. Welcome back to Mac Emerge podcast.
1: (laughs) Thanks so much for having me, Ben. It's nice to be here, and thank you for that very. Very kind introduction.
2: So I really wanted to have you on because you arranged an amazing session a few weeks ago about storytelling with Dr. Michael Williams, who, from my understanding, is now a retired social worker who focuses lots on the narratives and the narratives we have and how narratives shape our lives. And what that looks like within medicine and outside of medicine. And we had the opportunity to share stories with some of our co-residents, which was a wonderful experience. And I think it made everyone appreciate our own stories and the stories of our patients even more. And this is just one of many wellness activities that you have arranged for a residency program in the last year and a half. And one of many excellent examples of what wellness is. For you, what does wellness mean?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and thanks for uh bringing up Dr. Williams' session. I I'm really glad to hear that you enjoyed it. It was something new and I'm getting really positive feedback, so I'm definitely going to keep it in mind for future sessions. But when I think about what wellness means to me, I think it's important first to talk about what wellness isn't. So, when I got into the role of wellness uh, coordinator, for the Mac Emerge program about 12 months ago now, I started to do my own research on what wellness actually is because it's a term that's tossed around a lot, but you know, and I I sort of had an abstract sense of it, but, but what actually is it? And so I did some, some research and there is actually quite a bit of academic research on wellness and wellness and medicine specifically as well. And If you just do a quick Google, you'll find lots of different types of lists about what wellness means. And most people will say it's sort of this encompassing term that keeps within it different aspects of your life. And so most definitions will include emotional wellness, physical wellness, financial wellness, social, spiritual. And so it's sort of this multifaceted picture which I think is true. I think that wellness is, you can kind of picture it like a circle and there are many parts of the pie that are important to your to your whole wellness. But I think the, the problem with this definition or the focus on this perfect circle that has lots of different parts to it is that we tend to focus on the circle being perfect and having all of these aspects of wellness all the time. So to be well, we're told... I think from a lot of you know from social media from our superiors from people around us that we need to be super fit we need to eat super clean and we need to meditate every day and have some sort of epic spiritual awakening and you know for most people who are busy or not busy just living their lives that that's that's hard to do and that I would argue that that puts a lot of extra expectation on people that actually kinda goes totally against wellness. So I'm not here to say that those aren't aspects of wellness. They are. But I think that wellness is not perfection. Yeah,
2: that's such a great point. And you're absolutely right that we almost get this prescriptive definition of wellness of, Mm -hmm. you know, you need to as you said, eat right, be active, sleep lots, work lots, make a lot of money, enjoy spending your money. Right. Save your money. And it's almost contradictory to be able to do all of these things at once. And it puts a pressure on us that we need to get to this result. Exactly. It's not really, you know, how you feel. It's like there's like certain steps we have to pass to be well, which is a bit bit ridiculous. So what what's your perspective on wellness now after doing that reading?
1: Exactly. Yeah, so I... I've done a lot of thinking about it and thinking about sort of my own experience and, and talking to other people and what makes them feel well. And when they're feeling their best, you know, what's going on for them. And I've broken it down in my head into two main categories. So the first category is perspective. And the second category is acceptance or forgiveness. I use them interchangeably. So we'll talk about both. So perspective, I think it's important for people to have perspective on their lives on a semi-regular basis for different reasons. But for the main reason for me is that perspective helps us realize that when times are bad, they're not always gonna be bad. The storm doesn't last forever, right? That's a common saying, and I think it's really true. But it can be very easy to get caught up in the negative swirl of negative emotions or negative behaviors or patterns or events that happen in your life which happen to different degrees to different people. Um, But ultimately, everybody will go through something like that, right? And we go through it at different times. And it's important to remind yourself that this isn't your whole life. You know, even when you're in it, it's not everything. And there's usually an end to it most of the time. And so how can we do that? And I think a lot of people might tell you, oh, you need to keep a journal, right? So write down something every day. Um, And then you can look back at it and think, oh, yeah, I had a good day, you know, five days ago. So you know maybe this bad week isn't going to last forever um but i don't know about you ben i've like never been able to keep a journal <laughs> have you ever tried to do that
2: i think i've got like a, a notepad in here that probably has like 12 journal entries dated january 1st or 2nd right. of the past like <laughs> decade
1: there like, you go. this is
2: the year ben you're gonna change yourself <laughs> and it lasts like two days and then, you know yeah, no, I can't keep a journal Mickey.
1: exactly me either. And if someone does, that's fantastic. And if that works for you to help you keep your perspective, that's great. I encourage you to do that. But for me, it's like one other thing that I have to accomplish during the day and it just it never gets done. So I've tried to find ways around this. And something that I found to be helpful is saving old emails or old handwritten cards or notes or even text messages from close friends, um, family members, or even sometimes, you know, I was fortunate enough last year to get a card from a patient. I keep those things in a little folder. And just these little sort of mementos of moments in my life that were happy and moments in my life where I felt really good about something or something positive was happening, or, you know, it's a a positive memory. And they're all tucked away nicely in a little spot. And once in a while, I'll dig it out and take a look at those. And it's It really helps me remember that my life isn't only stress and busyness and, you know, tragedies that occur at the hospital and pressures of residency, but my life is full and rich and full of relationships and experiences that I've had in the past and that I will continue to have because it makes sense that if I've had those experiences until now, I'm going to have more of them. So that's probably my number one tip for perspectives. But I think another thing too, even if you don't want to do that, if you don't want to say, saving things. Another thing that I think you can do to gain perspective is try new experiences, right? And I want to be cautious when I say this, because I don't want to purport the thing that I'm trying not to purport, which is that people should be doing extra things all the time to make them feel well. But I think just considering maybe getting a new hobby, you know, something that you wouldn't usually do, or just trying a new experience with a friend, like, Watching a, even if something as simple as watching a movie that you normally wouldn't pick, you know, like a genre you wouldn't usually pick, you know something in a different language that can just take you take you out of where you're living right now and give you a different experience it helps you gain perspective on your on your own life when you see how other people's are. I think it's very easy to kind of get really inward and focus on our own problem. I think that's just a natural human tendency, but if we're able to push that a little bit, it can help us feel a little bit more balanced.
2: I think that's a beautiful idea. It expands the world that you might be worried is a bit negative. The world that when those negative thoughts come up, you know, can feel small and it just opens it up again. It opens another door. And even if it's, You know, it's not opening a door to getting an airplane ticket to getting, you know, on a vacation. It's just opening a door to realize, oh, yeah, there's a little bit more out there still. And there's always a little bit more good that I have done, even if today doesn't feel too good.
1: Like you said, it doesn't have to be a big dramatic thing. You don't have to go on a super exotic vacation or commit, you know, three new hours, three hours a week to a new hobby. It can just be when you have an opportunity to try something new that you wouldn't have normally chosen talk to someone new who you wouldn't normally talk to. You do have to push your comfort zone a little bit, but I think if you can do that, you will be cumulatively much more grateful for what you have because you'll be able to appreciate, I think just the diversity of the world and the experiences that, that everybody has. And I think that there's a, it's, there's almost a common a common sense of self that that humans get from relating, relating to one another. And I think we get that when we appreciate experiences on, on perspectives on other people's lives, if that makes sense.
2: It makes a lot of sense.
1: So that's kind of my first thing for wellness is perspective. I'm, I'm really big on that.
2: And that ends part one of my conversation with Maggie on wellness. We'll be releasing the second part in our December residence corner. So please wait around, stick it through for next session because Maggie has some amazing tips and tricks on how to be more well that I've already incorporated into my own life. So please take a listen in December for part two of our conversation with Maggie.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region.
2: Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well.
0: Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Smack and Merge out!